Today's reading is Jonah chapter 1. The Lord gave this message to Jonah, son of Amittai. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh. Announce my judgment against it, because I have seen how wicked its people are. But Jonah got up and went in the opposite direction to get away from the Lord. He went down to the port of Joppa, where he found a ship leaving for Tarshish. He bought a ticket and went on board, hoping to escape from the Lord by sailing to Tarshish. But the Lord hurled a powerful wind over the sea, causing a violent storm that threatened to break the ship apart. Fearing for their lives, the desperate sailors shouted to their gods for help and threw the cargo overboard to lighten the ship. But all this time, Jonah was sound asleep down in the hold, so the captain went down after him. How can you sleep at a time like this, he shouted. Get up and pray to your God. Maybe he will pay attention to us and spare our lives. Then the crew cast lots to see which of them had offended the gods and caused the terrible storm. When they did this, the lots identified Jonah as the culprit. Why has this awful storm come down on us, they demanded. Who are you? What is your line of work? What country are you from? What is your nationality? Jonah answered, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the land. The sailors were terrified when they heard this, for he had already told them he was running away from the Lord. Oh, why did you do it? They groaned. And since the storm was getting worse all the time, they asked him, what should we do to you to stop this storm? Throw me into the sea, Jonah said, and it will become calm again. I know that this terrible storm is all my fault. Instead, the sailors rowed even harder to get the ship to the land, but the stormy sea was too violent for them, and they couldn't make it. Then they cried out to the Lord, Jonah's God. Oh, Lord, they pleaded, don't make us die for this man's sin, and don't hold us responsible for his death. Oh, Lord, you have sent this storm upon him for your own good reasons. Then the sailors picked Jonah up and threw him into the raging sea, and the storm stopped at once. The sailors were awestruck by the Lord's great power, and they offered him a sacrifice and vowed to serve him. Now the Lord had arranged for a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish for three days and three nights. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Kids, you are dismissed to King's Quest as the rest of us are seated. Will you join me in inviting the Spirit of God to be present and active as we seek to be attentive to Him today? Let's pray together. Spirit of God, we invite you right now to be present, to be speaking through the text of Scripture this morning, that we might hear your voice, that we might respond to your love, and to the beauty of life that you offer to us that is found in relationship to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So please open your Bibles to Jonah chapter 1. If you don't have one, there's a Bible underneath the seat. It's page 774 in the Blue Bibles, or open up your app. If you're new to Grace, we're exploring Jonah together, the Jonah story. But my goal is to direct your attention away from a children's fish story, because actually there is no whale in the text of Scripture, in the text of Jonah, and there is some kind of a sea creature, a fish. It only shows up in three verses. And I've suggested that the author's focus is really about a man of faith who has a problem with God. It's about a man of faith who has a problem with God. 
Jonah runs from God not because of unbelief, not because of an absence of faith, but instead he runs because of a certain belief that he has. In other, way, in other words, Jonah is a runaway believer. And as I've said before, that, that really kind of gives me hope, perhaps gives you hope, that it's possible to have a relationship with God and to have a problem with God. It's possible to have a relationship with God and to be disappointed with God. It's possible to have a relationship with God and to, be, to feel distant from God, to not even really want God at all. And it kind of normalizes that, because I think oftentimes we feel like if, if we do have those feelings, if we do have those thoughts, that there's something wrong with me, there's something wrong, and, and therefore I need to feel ashamed or I need to feel guilty about that. And yet, I think the text of Jonah is normalizing that for us, that it's very possible to be in that condition. Last Sunday I asked, what kind of literature are we reading? We come into this text and we need to ask, what kind of literature are we reading? Is it pure historical narrative? In other words, am I being asked to believe that this actually happened? Am I being asked to believe that a man was swallowed by a fish, he lived inside the belly of a fish for three days, and wrote Hebrew poetry while he was inside of there, that's Jonah chapter 2, and then was vomited out on dry land, went into one of the world's Uh, largest empires, delivered a five-word message and had the entire hundreds of thousands of people in that empire immediately and without exception convert to Israel's God. Am I being asked to believe that actually happened? And that's what we spent time on last week. And what I suggested last week was that by paying attention to the literary type and the genre, we we discover that the author's style is part of the message. The author uses satire, exaggeration, and irony to make fun of Jonah and to draw us in by, in a similar way that Saturday Night Live brings us in on the humor because we're in on the joke. We get it. And we're drawn in, and then the author holds up a mirror to us and asks us to whether we can see ourselves in Jonah. So I suggested last week that Jonah is a narrative parable. A narrative parable. And what that is, is it's a parable based upon a, a real historical figure. Jonah is mentioned in 2 Kings 14.25. He is a real historical person. And I'm suggesting, as other scholars have said, that what the writer of Jonah is doing is using a real historical figure in a narrative parable in a similar way that Jesus takes a real historical figure of Lazarus in the New Testament and puts him inside a parable in Luke 16, Lazarus and the rich man. So Jesus himself did this in the New Testament. And I said last week, and I want to make it clear again this week, it is still truth. It is not any less truth because of its form, because of its genre. It is still truth, and it is designed by God to reveal his character to the people of God both then and still today. So that's the last two weeks just to kind of pull those people who might be new uh, back into what, you know, the background of all this. And having laid that background, I want to explore the text of Jonah with you this morning. So with Jonah chapter 1 open, look at verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying... Now, right away, we run into Jonah, the son of Amittai. The son of Amittai is 
a phrase that is used to identify this Jonah in this story with the Jonah in 2 Kings 14.25, where it is mentioned that, once again, it is Jonah, son of Amittai. So the real historical figure in 2 Kings 14.25 is identified with the Jonah in this parable. The name Jonah also means dove. And dove is a metaphor that is used oftentimes for Israel in the Old Testament. That's found in Hosea 7.7, Hosea 7.11, 11.11, and Psalm 74.19. So by the author picking up Jonah and the idea of his name meaning dove and dove throughout the Old Testament being used for Israel, it's the author's way of saying that Israel is intended to see themselves in this person of Jonah. This isn't just about one person. This is also about Israel as a whole. So in other words, he's holding up the mirror to Israel and saying to them, to the people of God then, you need to see yourself in this story. It's very purposeful for them. How much might they be just like Jonah in this story? And it's intended to have the same effect on the people of God still today. It's intended to hold the mirror up to us and say, do you see any of Jonah in yourself? Verse 2. Jonah is given a command, the word of the Lord says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now, a little bit of background on Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. Uh, it was located, it's located uh, near, on the outskirts of Mosul in modern-day Iraq. And so there's a map up there if you can see it. I didn't bring my pointer, I forgot to do it, but anyway, it's... Um, You see Nineveh right at the top of that green part um, near on the outskirts of Mosul. Uh, I want to show you a a cuneiform symbol. This is a cuneiform symbol for Nineveh. Okay, so the word Nineveh in cuneiform looks like this behind me. It was symbolized by a fish in a house. And it indicates that this was a significant port city on the Tigris River. It was a part of, on the highway of uh, a very important route for merchants and sailors. And so it was a very important place in the ancient Near East. But Assyria was also responsible for some of Israel's greatest disasters. Assyria wiped out 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel. Assyria had one of the most advanced and feared military forces of all times. It had the most prolific army of their time, and it changed how war would be fought for the rest of time. Assyria was the first to use iron in their spears and swords and shields and their armor. They even, they even tipped their battering rams with iron for added effectiveness. And when they first attacked their enemies with these new weapons, it caused almost as a profound reaction as the atomic bomb did in our day. Because against iron spears and swords, bronze shields were useless. So imagine all of a sudden going out for conventional warfare with bronze and being met with iron. It'd be terrorizing. They're a very brutal nation, and I want to, a quote behind me is from Asher Nazarpal, who was an Assyrian king who put down a rebellion, and it gives you a feel for how he 
did this and what was common practice for Assyria. He quotes, he he says these words, I built a pillar over against his city gate, and I flayed all the chief men who had revolted. And I covered the pillar with their skins. Then I walled up within the pillar. Then I walled up within the pillar. Some I impaled upon the pillar on stakes, and others I bound to stakes round about the pillar. Many within the border of my own land I flayed, and I spread their skins upon the walls, and I cut off the limbs of the officers, of the royal officers who had rebelled. Now, if you knew that Assyria was coming into town to fight against you, and you knew that this was one of their practices, that they would make an example of you by flaying people, taking their skins off, skinning them alive, that would cause you to think twice about rebelling against Assyria. A brutal, brutal nation. So back in the text, we read that God says to Jonah, Arise, go to Nineveh that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. God sees this oppressive empire. He sends his messenger, and he says, go to Nineveh. Now, to speak as a prophet was one thing. And the prophets were known, if you've read the Old Testament, the prophets were known for getting a word from God and then being called upon to speak. And oftentimes it was against Israel, sometimes against other nations, but rarely were they ever told to go. Jonah is being told to go to the most brutal empire known in the world. It would be similar to perhaps to being told to go to Berlin at the height of World War II, 1943, to go to the steps of the SS headquarters. I've been there where that was found, where that was located. And to announce at the base of the SS headquarters that the Third Reich is doomed. That would be a fool's errand. And Jonah, I think, realizes this. And what is Jonah's response? Verse 3, But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare, went on board to go with him to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Jonah's response is to flee, it's to run. Here's a map. We're not really sure, uh, scholars are not really sure where Tarshish was. They think that perhaps it was in Spain, but in keeping with the style and the, the literary type and the genre, it appears that perhaps this is more of the author's attempt to do exaggeration. Jonah is told to go east, and he goes west, as far west as he can go. It would be like saying, go to Timbuktu. Jonah is fleeing as far as he can away from this command that God has given to him. And the question is, why? Why does Jonah flee from God? Why would a prophet of God try to run from God? Why? And that's the key question of this story. Why? And after just hearing the background of Nineveh and the command to physically go, it would be be natural to think that Jonah doesn't want to go because he's afraid. He's fearful for his own life, right? 
But that's not what we're told here or any place else in this story. In fact, we're held in suspense until Jonah chapter 4. And the story goes like this. Jonah finally goes to Nineveh. He delivers God's message. Everyone instantaneously and without exception converts to Israel's God. And what is Jonah's response? Look over at chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Jonah explains why he ran. It was not because he was afraid. It's because he knew that somehow God would extend mercy to this nation of people known for their brutality and their wickedness. In other words, he had suspected this was going to have some kind of a good outcome for these people. And he doesn't want that for Israel's oppressors. They had wiped out ten of the twelve tribes. Jonah knows God tends to show mercy, and so he cuts and runs. But that's not all. You see, if Jonah's message could have such an effect on Nineveh, it could also have an effect on anyone and on any nation. And so for Jonah, this is a question of justice. Nineveh lived by the sword, it should perish by the sword especially after its brutal oppression of God's people, Israel. So given this background then, are you drawn in at all to empathize with Jonah? I am. I mean, it's easy to look at this kind of cartoon style, this whole story, and to kind of look at him as kind of a one-dimensional figure and to kind of laugh at him. And certainly the author does that for us at times. He holds him up in kind of a cartoonish way and causes us to laugh at him. We'll see a lot of humor because it's filled with satire. But in this particular case, I'm drawn in to empathize with this man, with with this character and his instinct to run from God. Because this is the central focus of the book. It's a man of faith who has a problem with God. And he runs not because of unbelief, but because of a certain belief he has about God. Specifically, that God is merciful, and he might extend his mercy beyond his covenant people, Israel. And we'll see this emerge more as we go through the story. I love uh, Barbara Brown Taylor's quote about this where she summarizes this and she says, the problem is many of the people in need of saving are in churches and at least part of what they need saving from is the idea that God sees the world the same way they do. And Jonah needs saving from that. My guess is perhaps some of us do too. So I want to pause here, and in the remaining time, I want to reflect on something. Specifically, God's command to Jonah to go, and Jonah's response of fleeing, of running. What is your response to the idea of being given a command to obey?
It might be mixed, perhaps, depending upon your family of origin. Maybe you grew up with a parent who was really demanding and critical and just gave you commands and was very harsh, or maybe you've been in workplaces where that was kind of the, the culture, or maybe you've grown up in a school situation where teachers were like that and it, was, it felt very oppressive and demanding. And so when you hear the word command, it really just sets something off for you and it, it, you, you chafe at that. Because for many people, obedience is often associated with power, with the ability to inflict consequences for the failure to obey. And I think it's easy to import that into our relationship with God. To view God as, as like a demanding parent who's ready to inflict judgment for a failure to obey. Most people, including many Christians, chafe at the idea of a God who commands, who commands us to do something. Why is that? I'd like to suggest it's because we have a default vision of what's best for us. And so we make decisions and we act in ways that make the most sense to us. It's not really surprising if you look at the text of Scripture and you see that the very origins of humanity in Genesis 1-3 to have the first man and woman living fully and freely in relationship to God and, and God is providing everything that they need and He's telling them, He's giving them this freedom as they live in relationship to Him to, to be fruitful and to multiply and to flourish and to, and to make things really happen within that garden. So He gives them all these positive commands. Positive commands. Commands. Nonetheless, and he gives them one negative command, and that one negative command has to do with a prohibition about not eating from one tree. And the question is, will they trust God that he has their best interests in mind? And they choose autonomy over trust. And I think, I think that story reveals the roots of our Struggle to trust. See, I think that we are hardwired to live out of competing vision of life, what we think is best for us. And the story of Israel is a story of a people who are chosen by God to be in relationship with him and to trust that he has their best interests in mind. And when you read the Old Testament, you see this repeated pattern of Israel doing what's right in their own eyes. That phrase is actually used repeatedly in the book of Judges. So they've been chosen to live in relationship to God and to trust that he has their best interests in mind, and yet they choose again and again and again to do what is best, to do what is right in their own eyes. And then God appears in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And the text of Scripture says that he delights to do the will of God. He delights to do the will of God, Hebrews 10.7. It says of Jesus that he does his Father's commands, John 12.49. He delights in the Father's will and he does the Father's command, not reluctantly, but with delight. And he offers life what he calls abundant life in John 10.10. And in that offer, he's saying there's a lot of what you think is the good life that is not really life at all. But you'll need to trust me. 
And trust is manifested in responding to my direction for your life. And that's what's at stake for Jonah and for us still today. Jonah thinks he's running for his life. But he's actually running from life. Because God's command to Jonah is really an invitation. It's an invitation to participate in something potentially monumental, namely a movement of God's grace and mercy. Jonah doesn't know it yet in this story. And I'm suggesting to you that God is inviting us still today to participate with him in his desire to pour out his love and his grace and his mercy on the people around us. The question is this. It's behind me. Will we settle for the life we're trying to make for ourselves? Or will we trust God by receiving the life that he wants to give to us? Just take a moment and sit in that question.